Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. I am your host, Anna Marsh, and today we're going to be talking about fasting and whether fasting is appropriate if you have fatigue and where it could possibly fit into your fatigue recovery journey. As we kick off the show, I'll just say I've got a bit of a cold at the moment at the time of recording this, so you may hear me taking some big breaths just because it's a bit difficult breathing through my nose at the moment, and um, my voice may sound a little bit nasally. I may need to pause to cough a few times, but please bear with. So what we'll talk about today is just looking at what is fasting and the different types of fasting. Why would someone fast? What are the potential benefits? And maybe just look at who should or shouldn't fast. I'll share my own personal experiences with fasting. And then we'll also talk a little bit about how to introduce fasting into your routine. So it's not something that you'll necessarily just jump straight into. There may be some preparation involved. And if it is something that you're interested in, doing or could be beneficial for you, but you feel so far away from actually being able to do it, I'll talk a little bit about how you can build yourself up to maybe eventually adding a little bit of fasting into your routine. First of all, let's look at what is fasting. And I guess fasting is just really not eating to a certain extent. It's as simple as that. But there's various different terminologies and various different approaches to fasting that people can take. You know, to a certain extent, we day to day, we all fast because unless you're waking up in the middle of the night and you're eating or snacking, you are probably doing an overnight fast every night. That means the hours between your last meal in the evening and your first meal in the morning are fasted hours. But that time may be variable for different individuals. Some people may eat up until 10 o'clock at night and then perhaps they're you know, having a latte or something like that first thing in the morning at 6am as they're getting up and therefore that fasted window is only eight hours. Some people may have their last meal at 6pm and they may not have anything except maybe like a black coffee or coffee with just like a splash of milk or dairy-free milk or a teeny tiny bit of cream or something like that Um, and then only really eat properly at about 10am which means their overnight fast is 16 hours. So this is often referred to by some people as intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding. And usually when I'm working with clients, ideally I'm asking them to have a 12-12 split. So that means that if they eat their last meal of the evening and they finish eating by 8 p.m., they make sure they don't have any snacks or calorific drinks thereafter. And then the earliest they would eat or have any kind of calorific drinks or snacks would be 8 a.m. the next morning. And that's a 12-hour window. So that's sort of the minimal we would require probably just for health, for influencing the circadian rhythm in a positive way. But then we can extend that to 14 hours, 16 hours, 18 hours, depending on what's appropriate for the individual. Then you also get um, OMAD, which is one meal a day. And this is, I guess, a daily 24-hour fast 
This is not something that I use myself. It's not something that I recommend to clients. It's actually not something that many of my clients do. Probably maybe I've met one client across all my years of experience who've been doing this, but it is something that people do. So worth mentioning here, which it means that, you know, somebody would just eat one meal a day, they'd eat their one meal, and then they wouldn't eat anything until the same time the next day. And then we have longer fasts. Personally, myself, I would do the one meal a day, maybe once a week, not daily. So that means I would usually start um, having a meal maybe four o'clock, five o'clock, so early dinner, and then not eat until four or five o'clock the next day, and then just have the one meal. And I'd do that maybe once a week. Um, But then sometimes I would also extend that a little bit longer. So maybe going for 36 hours, or in some cases I've even done 42 hours. So what that looks like practically is if you were to have your last meal at 4 p.m., then the next day, 4 p.m. would be 24 hours. And then 12 hours after that, 4 a.m. in the morning, probably not the best example, would be 36 hours. Um, But if you went another six hours, that's 10 a.m. the next morning, that would be a 42-hour fast. So that's where um, a little bit longer fasting um, could be beneficial for some people. And then people do do three-day water fasts or even sometimes seven-day water fasts. That's not something that I often recommend for clients. I do think if you're doing a longer fast, it's good to do it with someone who has experience in teaching and supporting that. Not because necessarily anything will go wrong, but sometimes things can go wrong and you do just want to make sure you're working with someone who has the experience to support you with those longer fasts. But for the most part, the way that I'm working with in my practice is anything from just time-restricted feeding all the way over to the 42, 48-hour fast, so two-day fasts. And why would someone do this? Why would someone restrict their food intake or and not eat for, you know, 42 hours at a time? Well, there are many benefits to fasting. And if you listen to the previous episode on the cell danger response, one of the things that I mentioned is when the body is in a cell danger response, it changes metabolism. So the immune system, when it's active, is a sugar-dependent system. It relies on glycolytic metabolism, which is a sugar-burning metabolism. And it switches itself away from oxidative metabolism, which is a fat metabolism which requires oxygen. When the immune system is very active and the cell danger response has been turned on, there's a change in metabolism. And we know that chronic disease can be associated with getting stuck in the cell danger response. And sometimes even when the threat is long gone, for example, if somebody has a viral infection and then they end up with a post-viral fatigue, like long COVID, for example, the body can maybe be stuck in this glycolytic metabolism and fasting can help the body to switch into the more oxidative, fat-burning 
energy metabolism that requires oxygen. And in doing so, that can also help to create a switch in the immune system. It's one of the ways we can help to switch the immune system off and bring the brain back into dominance again. One of the other benefits of fasting is autophagy. So autophagy is really like taking out the cellular trash. When we've got no nutrition coming into the body, then the body has an opportunity to kind of do a little bit of a clean up and just discard you know, old proteins, discard toxins, discard cellular wastes. And it's um, quite useful for the detoxification processes and just generally for reducing inflammation and doing a little bit of a cellular cleanup. And that's why it can be quite nice to do those longer fasts, maybe a couple of times a year with seasonal changes, maybe coming into spring or going into autumn. Might be nice times of year to do a little bit of a longer fast and kind of just give your body that little bit of a reboot. Fasting is also really beneficial for um, re-establishing brain pull. So brain pull is the ability of the brain to pull energy and nutrition and nutrients into the brain. And when the body is working well and it's healthy and it's functional, the brain should ultimately be in a state of dominance, which means it's running the show. And when the body is in a state of inflammation, like when we're in the cell danger response, we may have low brain pull which means the energy is being prioritized towards the immune system away from the brain. And therefore, there's not a lot of energy going to the brain and that can lead to fatigue, headaches, brain fog, low mood. And obviously that's very beneficial in the short term. But if that is being sustained long-term, it can start to become dysfunctional. So fasting is a way we can put the brain back on top again. We can allow the brain to dominate again over the immune system. It also can be great for improving the metabolic health, so increasing insulin sensitivity for those people who are maybe experiencing high levels of insulin or blood sugar imbalances or have a poor carbohydrate tolerance or poor metabolic flexibility. It can be a really nice little reset button. So I would notice with my fasts, if I did a longer fast, like a 24, 36 or 42 hour fasts, for a few days after that, I would see much better blood glucose responses, much better um, blood ketone levels. My appetite would be a lot more regulated. I wouldn't feel as hungry. Um, and generally, just overall metabolically, I would feel quite good. So it can be really beneficial if you do have kind of any metabolic stuff going on, which is usually kind of part and parcel of the inflammation in the body and the immune imbalance. It's one of the ways in which we can start to re press the reset button on that a little bit. So it can be really, really beneficial. So generally speaking, fasting is just great for metabolic health. It's great for supporting the immune system. It's great for detoxification. It can be great for weight loss if that's a goal for you, mainly just because you are calorie restricting and improving your insulin sensitivity. So there are many different reasons why fasting would be beneficial. But then I often get questions, people often say, but, you know, I heard that fasting was really bad for my hormones, my, my female hormones, estrogen and progesterone. 
or I have a thyroid issue and I've been told that fasting is really bad for thyroid issues. And here I would always say that I tend to recommend fasting on a case by case basis with each client. I don't believe dogmatically that fasting is bad for hormones. I don't believe dogmatically that fasting is bad for thyroid function because actually the inflammation, the cell danger response, the poor metabolic health is probably something that is more damaging to your sex hormones, is more damaging to your thyroid hormones than the fasting would be. And if fasting is something that can help to restore the balance in the immune system, in the metabolic health, in the inflammation, then that is something that could actually potentially be beneficial for your hormones and your thyroid as well. I did quite a lot of fasting in my first year of recovery and I was also tracking thyroid hormones at the time uh, for about, it must have been about 18 months or two years, just this is the time frame I was measuring my thyroid hormones and I was doing a ketogenic diet with regular weekly fasts and sort of general day-to-day intermittent fasts. Never, ever saw a change in my thyroid hormones. Um, actually, at the time, my estrogen levels were probably the best they'd been. I tend towards estrogen dominance normally. And um, it was only really after my mold exposure at the end of 2019 that my hormones went a little bit um, imbalanced in terms of having high levels of estrogen. But I think that's much more to do with the mold exposure than it was anything to do with fasting. But I will share a little bit about how you can time your fasting around your hormonal cycle as well. So my personal experiences with fasting were pretty great. I've already shared that after a fast, I would experience improved insulin sensitivity, improved appetite, just generally feeling more satiated by meals. Um, I did experience some weight loss, but I kind of take that with a pinch of salt because there were so many different factors involved. I was also on a ketogenic diet. I was doing some fasting. I was probably losing some muscle mass and um, I had a lot of digestive issues at the time. So I think I was probably also just losing weight because I wasn't absorbing enough food. So kind of just take that weight loss with a pinch of salt, although it is a potential benefit. Um, But what I would definitely find is when I was fasting, I would always feel really good. Um, if Even if I was like a little bit more inflamed or I had some brain fog, the longer I fasted, the better I would feel. And I remember the very first time I did my first 24-hour fast, my husband's parents were visiting us and I had decided to do this 24-hour fast. And of course, they were visiting and eating cake and biscuits and going out and doing things. And we went for a little walk on the beach um, that afternoon and we came back and everybody sat down and they were having tea and biscuits and I was just having, you know, herbal tea and everybody started to fall asleep on the sofa, you know, like a little post-carb coma or post-carb crash. And I was just feeling great and more energized. And I had the most energy and I wasn't the person who had eaten all day long. So there's noticeable benefits for me in terms of reduction in brain fog, reduction in inflammatory symptoms, increased energy, increased mental clarity while being in a fasted state. 
And I think there's multiple different mechanisms for that, but it really does um, highlight this idea of the brain pull. You're teaching your body to pull energy up into the brain again because there's um, you're not competing with the food that that's being eaten and therefore the immune system isn't constantly being fed. Your body now has to draw on the resources that it has available and that can increase the brain pull. So personally, I like fasting. I've never experienced any depletion from fasting, but we always need to consider this on a case-by-case basis and you need to think if it's going to be something that's right for you or not. So who should try fasting? Well, anyone who wants to experience the benefits of fasting should at least try fasting to see if it works well for them. But it's not something that you necessarily want to throw yourself into like straight away. There's a certain amount of preparation that's involved depending on where you are with your diet, your current state of health, your metabolic status, so how metabolically flexible you are, your ability to use fats and sugars as fuel, and also just where you are in your fatigue recovery journey and what else you're working on. You know, if you're doing like a massive gut protocol or you're diving deep into nervous system regulation and you're working on a lot of your childhood trauma, you know, you really want to be careful about adding in too many stresses at once. How I like to set my clients up for success is I always say stability first. We want to stabilize the body before we start adding challenge. And just like, you know, we want to stabilize the nervous system, we learn to stabilize the nervous system before we go digging into past trauma. So we want to stabilize the body. And that means we need a good diet. We need stable blood glucose. And you can listen to the blood glucose episode um, if you want to learn a little bit more about that. We also need to make sure the person is sleeping okay. I know sleep challenges can be a thing when it comes to fatigue recovery. And if you're not sleeping, if your sleep is disturbed, if you're not getting optimal sleep most nights, of course, you know, a night here and there of bad sleep is okay. But if poor sleep is your thing, then that's something you maybe want to address first before you explore fasting. And also movement. And movement is always a tricky one with fatigue because people with fatigue like, oh, I can't do any exercise because I get post-exertional malaise. But it's just making sure that that person is not doing too much movement for their capacity, but perhaps they're also moving as regularly and in a way that they can move. And then we also want to make sure that the nervous system is adequately resourced. So um, if you listen to my nervous system episode, um, or if you haven't listened to my nervous system episode, you can go back and revisit that. Um, But we just want to make sure that there's some resourcefulness in the nervous system, that there's stability in the diet and blood glucose control, that somebody is sleeping okay enough, and that they're not doing too much movement or too little movement. And um, I will actually have another episode coming out next week where I talk a little bit about diet, but just from a food perspective, it's just looking, making sure that someone's eating regular meals, those meals are balanced, and um, someone is eating in a way that supports blood glucose control. So they're not still having a lot of processed carbohydrate, a lot of sugar, and their blood sugar isn't fluctuating from high to low throughout the day. 
So if you've got that stability, what's the next step? The next step is to reduce meal frequency. So sometimes people will eat three meals a day and then three snacks, like a snack between breakfast and lunch, a snack between lunch and dinner, and then maybe a bedtime snack. So the first thing we want to do is start to reduce the snacking. And some people cut out the snacks, but they forget to increase the size of their main meals. And then they end up hungry and then they say, oh, I can't cut out the snacks because I need to eat. So here we, we want to make sure that if we're taking something out, we need to make up for those calories elsewhere. Of course, if you're overeating with the snacks, perhaps taking out the snacks and then just eating your regular meals now means that you're in a balanced energy intake, but you won't actually know that unless you're maybe take a few weeks or days just to track and log your food and see how much you are eating on a daily basis. But the goal here really is to be able to eat three meals a day without the need to snack because how are you going to then do a longer fast if you are dependent on food every few hours? So we're trying to reduce the dependency we have on food. And this is why blood sugar control is really important. If we have poor blood sugar control and blood sugar is swinging from high to low throughout the day, every time we hit a sugar low, we're going to feel the need to eat. And then it's going to make reducing meal frequency very difficult. So first of all, we need to achieve blood glucose control and then we can start to reduce meal frequency because it will be easier to go for longer without eating when blood glucose is more stable. Then once we've reduced meal frequency, we can think about that overnight fasted window. You may already be having that 12-12 split that I described. So last meal at 8 p.m., first meal at 8 a.m. Obviously, different people have got different schedules. So your exact timings may be different, but I just use that as an example. And so then maybe you can play around with, you know, pushing that 8 a.m. to a 9 a.m. And maybe that 8 p.m. dinner is now a 7 p.m. dinner. And just in doing that, you've now got a 14-hour overnight fast. And then maybe you could have an earlier dinner that could be 6 p.m. And then you just push breakfast back an extra hour. Now that's 8, um, 10 a.m. and you've got a 16-hour overnight fast. What I really discourage my clients to do is to think of this very rigidly. So, for example, if someone is now working towards the 16-hour overnight fast and then they put a lot of pressure on themselves to do that every single day, it's just too much because life doesn't work like that. You know, our life should be flexible. Health is about flexibility, flexibility in the immune system, flexibility in the metabolic system, flexibility in the nervous system, and flexibility psychologically to think and differently and respond differently in different situations. So we want to be flexible, which means that if you wake up one day and you're really hungry and you need to eat after 13 hours, you eat. And if you're not that hungry one day and you're able to push, you know, your meal back to 18 hours or maybe even 20 hours, you do that. So here I just encourage people to just be really flexible and um, honor their body. And yes, there may be a little bit of hunger, but 
I think sometimes we're so afraid of feeling hungry that the moment we feel a little bit of hunger, we panic and we think we need to eat. And sometimes it can be interesting just to be curious and just be like, oh, I feel a bit hungry, but I'm okay. You know, I can just maybe take a little bit more time and maybe just eat in an hour. So play around with it. Be curious because curiosity requires regulation and, um, also, if it's not working for you, if you really just can't go past the 12-12, maybe it's just not your time. Maybe there's some other things that you need to work on first and circle back around here. But all being well, if you're able to quite easily do a 16-hour and then maybe once a week you do an 18-hour and then once a week you do a 20-hour and then maybe you do the 24-hour or maybe it's 22 or maybe it's 23 or maybe it's 28, you know, there's no hard and fast rules here. That is something that's quite nice to do once a week. So that was the approach that I used is um, just a weekly 24-hour fast. Sometimes that 24-hour fast I wouldn't do if I was on my period, for example. Um, and maybe sometimes I would go a little bit longer. So in the second half of my cycle, when I was more resilient generally, then maybe I would do a 36 or a 42 hour fast. But it also depends um, what you've got going on in your life, if you're traveling, if you've got social events. Um, if you've got a lot of other stresses that are happening. So you can really just, you know, take it one day at a time and I think not get too hell-bent on it has to be this way and have a very regimented regime. So when I would do my fasts, I had a few little crutches that would help me. Um, at the time, uh, when I was drinking coffee, I would maybe do a coffee with just a tablespoon of cream in. It would be more of anything, just like a little psychological crutch. Um, the cream is a very high fat, so it's not necessarily going to mess with blood sugar. I don't like black coffee, so I wouldn't just have a black coffee, although you could do that. Um, but it was just sort of when I hit that point, usually when it would be the time I would normally have breakfast and I was starting to feel a little bit hungry, then I would have my coffee with cream. The caffeine is a natural appetite suppressant, so that would probably suppress my appetite a little bit. And then I would be able to keep on going. You could also do, for example, like a tablespoon of coconut oil or some MCT oil, and that can maybe help to extend your fast a little bit longer. It's quite normal to experience waves of hunger as you're doing a longer fast. And I think the difference here is just kind of like feeling a little bit hungry and then waiting and then letting it subside versus actually starting to develop symptoms where you're crashing, you're shaking, you really, really need to eat. You almost have that overwhelming, I would say, emotional hunger. So often when we take away food, food is quite an emotional coping mechanism for some people. And when we take it away, sometimes it reveals the emotions which are underneath. This is where we want to have already built up a little bit of stability and capacity in the nervous system so we can maybe self-regulate and process any emotions that come up. 
And it's also important to know that sometimes the immune system, if it's very active, it can hijack your appetite. And sometimes those sort of emotional or desperation to just suddenly need to eat um, can be coming more from this um, conflict between the brain and the immune system. So if you are experiencing that kind of like overwhelm, it's a good opportunity just to slow down maybe use some practices to regulate your nervous system if possible maybe um try a little high fat snack so you could do a decaf coffee with some cream or you could do the coconut oil or mct oil or maybe even just like half an avocado or sometimes i would just do scrambled egg yolk so just the yolk with a lot of like salt and pepper and then a little bit of olive oil drizzled on top. So very, very high fat snack and just have that and then just see, okay, can I keep going for a little bit longer now? And then, I mean, if you can't, that's absolutely fine. Have compassion that you may be not ready for this yet. Um, but if you can, fantastic. You've just taken another step forward in your journey. And then the other thing you may also want to consider is electrolytes. So I often recommend electrolytes to my clients generally. I think they're very supportive for fatigue. But when you are lower carb, ketogenic or doing a fast, you do tend to lose more water because of the reduction in insulin. And with that water, you also lose your electrolytes. So some electrolytes while fasted can be great. And I like the Keto Pro electrolytes from, yeah, I just buy them from Amazon and they do contain some stevia, but I think that's, you know, fine in the context of, you know, just a, if you're just having a, a scoop full while you're fasting, provided you're okay with stevia. And the other thing you can do, and I would sometimes do this on longer fasts, is just have a stock cube. So a stock cube might have about a gram of salt in it, give or take. And I would just mix that, you know, with some hot water, almost to make like a very light soup. And I would drink that if I felt like I needed a little bit more electrolytes. Or if I was doing a 36 or a 42 hour fast, when I kind of reached that 24 hour mark where I would usually be breaking the fast if I was fasting for only 24 hours, when you kind of psychologically might feel like you want to eat something at dinner time that day, then you could do the, the soup stock cube or you could do the, the scrambled eggs um, with the olive oil and fresh herbs and salt and pepper. Just as more so than anything, just that little bit of like psychological um relief maybe shall we say just to kind of encourage you to keep on going so those are a couple of options there then finally i'd also say pick your days so my favorite days for fasting were actually saturdays they might not be the pick for everyone and um what I would do is have an early dinner on a Friday and then I would just fast on a Saturday because on Saturdays I felt like I didn't have the stress of work. Things were a little bit of a slower pace. I could take some time to do things to support my emotional regulation. I could get outside. So for me personally, Saturdays were a really nice day. Sometimes people like to do it on a weekday because there's more distractions. So it's totally up to you. Just watch out for stack, um, stacking too many stresses all at once. 
And then the other thing you may have a question about is exercise. Would you exercise on a day that you're fasting? And I think some low intensity exercise could be beneficial. It obviously depends where you are in your recovery journey. So like if a walk for you is a really big deal, then you may not want to do a walk and a fast on the same day. But personally, I found that actually if I did a big walk, like an hour and a half walk on a day when I was fasting, my recovery was better and my PM was better as well. So it's something you might want to play around with, but just trade cautiously. I probably wouldn't do now like a weights workout on the same day because after you've done weights, the goal is to build muscle mass. So you want to eat afterwards, but something low intensity, like a gentle yoga, a bit of walking, a bit of swimming, maybe fine on a, a fasting day. And then the final thing is just a hormonal cycle. I've alluded to this a little bit as I've been sharing everything with you, but we might want to think about how we time fasting in congruence with the cycle. So menstruation for many women, especially women with fatigue, can be quite a stressful event. So we might not want to push any longer fasts in the first week. So maybe a few days, three days before menstruation and maybe for the first seven days of the cycle. But then as your hormones begin to build from about day nine of the cycle, that might be a good time to start doing your longer fasts. And then provided you have a good ovulation, the second half of the cycle, if you're making good amounts of progesterone, you may be more robust to do some of those longer fasts. But I would avoid doing a longer fast too close to ovulation. So if you know when you ovulate, maybe don't do a longer fast on the day you ovulate. And especially if there's challenges with ovulation or challenges with fertility, I probably wouldn't recommend doing any fasts which are too long and too stressful for the body. But a slightly longer overnight intermittent fast would probably be okay. In the hormonal cycle, we just want to be mindful of those key times. So maybe not the last three days of the cycle, not the first seven days of the cycle, not exactly on the day that you're ovulating, but day 21, if you have a 28-day cycle, if you're producing good amounts of progesterone, this is where you should feel pretty robust. That might be a good day to do a longer fast. And remember here, there's a difference between sort of really pushing yourself and forcing yourself to do something and just really allowing things to unfold with a little bit of mild discomfort. So those occasional waxing and waning hunger pains that you might get. If you feel like you had a fast planned and you wake up the next day and then you feel like it's just not the day for it, that's okay too. You can reschedule your fast as well. So I'm very encouraging of people listening to their bodies and honoring their bodies. But I think sometimes that can almost go too far, especially for people with fatigue, where they're sort of self-protecting, that they're protecting themselves absolutely from any mild discomfort. So we want to find this balance between maybe experiencing a little bit of challenge, a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of stress, but it still feels manageable. Um, versus, you know, doing something that's very stressful and, and dysregulating the nervous system. Then the final thing is probably how do you end your fast? What do you eat? 
So when I was doing a 24 hour fast, I would have one meal that day. So kind of like the OMAD model and it would just be a normal meal and a healthy meal. So you don't want to break your fast with anything that will be dysregulating for your blood sugar. I was already on a ketogenic diet at the time. So I'd have a regular meal, um, you know, some protein, some salads, some fats, maybe a little bit of dark chocolate to reward myself for my fast, but just a regular meal. And I would aim to keep that meal about 800 to 1,000 calories, and then that would be it for the day. I'd try not to eat again because I really wanted to prolong the benefits of that fast and then continue for the days afterwards, continuing to eat really well. So we want to continue to support blood sugar post-fast. We don't want to go, oh, yay, I did it. Now I'll have my donut and my chocolate cake and my uh, French fries and my takeaway. That's That kind of defeats the purpose of the fast. So you do want to continue to maintain stability, good nutrition as you continue the days after the fast. So we can perpetuate the benefits for as long as possible. So that, I think, brings me to the end of everything on fasting. And if you've got any questions, you can always reach out to let me know if I missed anything. And um, if you've enjoyed the episode, if you find it helpful, make sure you have subscribed on your favorite player. And you can also leave a review in iTunes. And I will be very, very grateful. Thank you so much and have a wonderful fatigue recovery day.